case file number 2.4. Bad crypto. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Have you ever heard of a company named Crypto AG? No, doesn't really ring a bell. So I came across this article. It's a, it's a Washington Post article um, by Greg Miller. So like full credits to him for writing this entire thing up. What he found, uh, given some exposed documents or whatever, is uh, for basically over half a century, uh, countless governments trusted a single company to keep their communication safe and secure between military uh, units, spies, and diplomats. Uh, that would be Crypto AG. It's a Swiss firm. Mm -hmm. uh, first started in World War II. Won a contract for making uh, code-breaking machines for U.S. troops. Okay. So kind of ties a little bit back into the Dingba episode. So um, later on, it would go on to be a huge player in the encryption device world. It made uh, a bunch of devices with technology from mechanical gears, circuits, silicon, and software. So, you know, it just kind of kept up with the times as the, the years went by. Mm -hmm. It sold this tech to 120 countries. Which is like almost all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it made a, a crap ton of money. Mm -hmm. uh, some of its clients included Iran, uh, Juntas in Latin America, India, Pakistan, the Vatican even. So what none of these 120 countries knew, however, was the CIA secretly owned Crypto AG with a partnership with West German intelligence. Well, you can't win any harder than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these two agencies rigged all of their encryption devices so that they could easily break any codes the countries uh, used to send messages. Uh, all this was laid bare in a document attained by the Washington Post in a ZDF, which is a German public broadcaster. Yeah, this is pretty crazy to, to read through. I'd never even heard of this. I am boggled and baffled. Um, yeah. I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. <laughs> so this operation was known as Thesaurus in uh, later Rubicon. Mm -hmm. uh, it ranks pretty much uh, almost like top level in the realm of like just crazy ass things the CIA has done. There's a list. And, you know, <laughs> long list. Yeah, yeah. For how long it operated on. The CIA report says it was the intelligent coup of the century. Uh, foreign governments were paying good money to the U.S. and West Germany for the privilege of having their most secret communications read by at least two foreign countries. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I always say, having worked with a little, a few government secrets here and there, that the government can keep secrets. It just doesn't know which secrets it can keep. And it looks like they really kept this one. Yeah, this, this was kept pretty tight-lipped for a long time yeah this, this is huge i can't yeah there were there were like slight suspicions and like i'll get into a few of the events that kind of you know made a few of these countries suspicious but like a lot of the times the country was suspicious and then was like mm, whatever it just got by St starting in 1970 and continuing you know well past that um the the cia and nsa controlled almost all aspects of crypto ag's operations 
along with their German partner, they decided on the hiring of uh, people, technology decisions, and design sabotaging algorithms and all the sales targets, like who they would actually like push for sales to. They monitored Iran's mullahs during the 1979 hostage crisis. They fed intelligence about Argentina's military to Britain during the Falkland War. They tracked the assassination campaigns of South American dictators, and they caught Libyan officials congratulating themselves on the 1986 Berlin disco bombing. Well, this explains actually one or two things about how sure they were about things like the, about yeah. the culpability of Libya and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. The, there were limits, though. Uh, the Soviets and China were never customers of crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, they had major suspicions of the company, which uh, turned out to be pretty well founded. Yeah. Though U.S. spies did learn a good amount uh, still just by proxy from uh, monitoring countries' interactions with Moscow and Beijing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, security breaches also put crypto under some watchful eyes. Documents released in the 70s showed extensive correspondence between NSA pioneer and crypto founder. Foreign targets were tipped off by careless statements of public officials, including Reagan. I'll get more into that. Well, going back just a second to the exposing mm -hmm. stuff by proxy, uh, going back to the whole Bletchley Park episode, mm -hmm. we know that some of the German communications were exposed because the Japanese ciphers were broken. So it's just that story all over again. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you could break one side, it leads you to kind of help it not to break the other. Yeah, well, or as long as you break one of the links in the chain for retransmission and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I meant to interrupt, but I, you can proceed. <laughs> so so another another major event was a 1992 arrest of a crypto salesman in Iran who uh, didn't realize he was selling rigged equipment. And this triggered it triggered like a huge backlash of publicity. Mm -hmm. uh, the BND, the German spy agency, came to believe the exposure risk was too great and bailed out of the operation in the early 90s. But the CIA just bought the German stake and trucked along until 2018 when it sold off the company's assets. The importance of crypto to the global market had fallen by then, mostly due to the spread of online encryption tech. Mm -hmm. uh, and the NSA was kind of looking more at Google, um, Facebook, and all that stuff. Echoes of this can be seen in current suspicions regarding Kaspersky with its links to Russia and yeah. Huawei with uh, you know, Highway, ties to yeah. China. Yeah. Huawei, Highway. I've heard it actually both ways. Yeah. They have really good cameras on those phones. I remember when I went to Costa Rica and saw one for the first time, I was like, yeah. Well, I was talking about FX and when in the Flash episode and when he did his breakdown of uh, the Huawei um, routers at the time, it was like, oh, this isn't even in the same league as the state of the art stuff coming yeah. from, from the big players. I don't know that I trust anything that they do. <laughs> yeah. Also, like you were saying, they have a strong association with the PLA and mm -hmm. Chinese intelligence. Yeah, exactly. In, in documents, uh, there's an overlap of counts exposing frictions between the two partners, uh, BND and CIA, um, over money, control, and ethical limits. Uh, the West Germans were frequently taken aback by how eager the U.S. would spy on its own allies. <laughs> Both sides, though, describe it as like, a hugely successful operation, which it was. Mm, yes. Crypto accounted for approximately 40% of diplomatic cables and other transmissions by foreign government at the time while also generating millions of dollars for profits for the CIA and BND. You can't beat an operation that pays for itself. <laughs> Actually, so the, the products are still in use in more than a dozen countries around the world, even though the company was taken part in 2018. That doesn't surprise me. We have no idea who the shareholders were because um, Liechtenstein was uh, a firm there was used to do this entire thing. 
and they have like archaic Byzantine laws that kind of stop you from looking at anything. Yeah, it's Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg mm-hmm. are all known for banking secrets, secrecy, and uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. as a as an imperative. Mm-hmm. Two companies purchased most of the assets: Psi One Security, which now sells security systems only to the Swiss government, and Crypto Intel, uh, International, which took over the brand in international business. Both of them claim no ties to any intelligence agencies. Going back to what you were saying, that they found their stuff was used less often. There's a lot of open source or non-bespoke uh, crypto out there that is quite strong. Yeah, 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 exactly. So why am I paying for this bespoke stuff when I can get interoperability with OpenSSL or even mm-hmm. Microsoft's crypto API stuff built straight in? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So while the papers highlight the effectiveness of the program, they don't answer the uh, obvious uh, question of exactly what the intel was used for. You know, we have no idea if the U.S. just kind of sat by and watched people get assassinated, knowing full well that it was going on just because it was in our best interest or anything like that. And in interviews, employees um, had no idea uh, what they were doing or selling. Um, they were just completely in the dark and said that the revelations uh, in the documents caused a huge sense of betrayal from a lot of the employees. I imagine so. I, I'll bet you a lot of people who were selling that stuff believed in selling secure communications to mm-hmm. their customers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll, I'll get into it further later on, but like a lot of them had suspicions and kind of acted on those suspicions and, you know, were either let go or kind of like, you know, had a talking to and, you know, kind of were not told exactly what was going on, but, you know, you could infer what was going on. Mm-hmm. But, so starting at the beginning, um, crypto was founded by uh, Boris Hagelin. Uh, he was an entrepreneur and inventor born in Russia. He fled to Sweden as the Bolsheviks took power and then fled again uh, once the U.S. or fled again to the U.S. when uh, Nazis occupied Norway in 1940. Mm-hmm. With him, he brought an encryption machine that looked like a fortified music box. Uh, it was elaborate. It wasn't as elaborate or secure as the Enigma machines. Um, mm-hmm. This was called the M209. And it was just basically a portable, hand-powered um, encryption device, and it was perfect for troops on the ground and on the move. Many of these devices are actually preserved at a private museum in uh, Eindhoven in the uh, Netherlands. Cool. So sending messages via the device was super, super freaking tedious. Uh, <laughs> users had to rotate a dial letter by letter and yank the crank down. Hidden gears would turn and spit out an enciphered message on a strip of paper. Signal officials would then transmit that message by Morse code to the recipient, who would uh, reverse it. Security was crazy weak. Um, it, it was just assumed that anyone could break the code with enough time, but that didn't matter because they used these devices uh, for tactical messages about troop movements. So by the time it was broken, like your troops had yeah. already moved or like engaged the enemy in some way. Well, that's actually a really important principle in cryptography in general is how long does the data need to be secure? And that's part mm-hmm. of the yeah. calculation of what you use for the implementation. Yeah, exactly. So roughly... 140,000 M209s were built during the course of the war in the factory in uh, Syracuse, New York. Under under a contract worth $8.6 million to crypto. So after the war, Heglin uh, returned to Sweden to reopen his factory, bringing with him his uh, small personal fortune. Mm -hmm. Basically a sense of loyalty to the United States for having sheltered him and given him all this. Yeah. But American spies kept an eye on him uh, during his post-war operations. In his early 50s, he developed a more advanced version of the M209 with a regular mechanical sequence that briefly stumped American code breakers. 
Okay. They were they were alarmed by this and other devices he envisioned. Mm-hmm. So uh, the U.S. began to discuss what they called the Hegeland problem. Mm-hmm. There was a worry that the world would basically go dark if countries began to de- buy devices from him. And they never had that fear again. <laughs> yeah. So the U.S. had a few points of leverage on him. Uh, his affinity for the U.S., uh, his hope that they would remain a major customer, and also veiled threats that they would flood the market with a bunch of M209s. Mm-hmm. They also had a lifelong friend of Hagelin's by the name of William Friedman. Okay. So over dinner at the Cosmo Club in Washington in 1951, the two men shook hands over a deal. The deal called for Hagelin, who had moved his company to Switzerland to restrict sales of his most sophisticated models to countries approved by the U.S. Other nations got older, weaker systems, and Hagelin would be compensated for um, you know those sales. Mm-hmm. During the 60s, the contracts deepened and the U.S. started infusing the company with cash for uh, quote-unquote marketing expenses to ensure that they would lock down contracts with most of the world's governments. So they were just bolstering them to, to win all those contract deals. It's worth every penny if, if they're able to, uh, to get in the middle of, that com- of those communications. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's priceless. This was uh, obviously designed to stop any adversaries from acquiring anything that would be given to them, um, you know, that they could actually have an advantage. So within a decade, the whole operation belonged to the CIA and BND. U.S. officials had toyed with the idea of asking Hagelin if uh, he would be willing to let cryptologists doctor his machines, but Friedman overruled them. He was, he was convinced Hagelin would see that as a step uh, going too far. In the 60s, they saw a new opening, though, as the spread of circuits forced Hagelin to uh, accept outside help adapting to the new technology. Uh, NSA cryptologists were concerned uh, the new technology may impact encryption and make it unbreakable. But uh, Peter, Peter Yanks, a senior analyst, identified a potential vulnerability to all of this. He said, if you carefully designed, or if carefully designed by a clever crypto mathematician, a circuit-based system would, could be used to appear that it was producing endless streams of random characters, while in reality, it would repeat itself in short enough intervals for the NSA experts and their computers to crack the patterns. Two years later, the H460 was rolled out with its inner workings designed completely by the NSA. Lovely. <laughs> yeah, there weren't any backdoors um, or program devices to cough up encryption keys or anything like that. Um, and the agency still did face the, the task of basically having to intercept these communications. Yes. But the manipulation of the algorithm streamlined the code breaking process, at times reducing to seconds a task that would have taken them months to do. And they always had two models of these devices. One they sold to friendly governments uh, that were secure and one rigged for the rest of the world. The shift to electronic products also bolstered the company, making them rely even more on the NSA. Foreign governments wanted more and more of these systems, so they were just buying them by the, the boatload, literally. And um, you know, the company turned to the NSA to help them out manufacture all this stuff. <laughs> this is great, isn't it? Well, it's, I mean, putting ourselves in the time when this happened, there was probably some, if not more trust, there was a lot more understanding of the wink of and the nod of fighting the commies. And yeah, yeah, it is the, the height of the Cold War. Right. And like, I've done a lot of reading of stuff that happened in the Cold War and a lot of kind of things that were not completely on the up and up. And a lot of it was justified. Um, not just by the people doing it, but by the people who saw it happen and 
didn't do anything about it mm-hmm. yeah because they saw it as part of the the effort uh to fight the commies and sometimes you got to fight dirty so yeah, I mean, yeah exactly so i mean it i'm not saying it was a good thing mm-hmm. but for, for for one thing you have an attitude and ethos that's going on at that point in time and second you understand because of things like this that we're seeing now why there's been so much reticence through the 90s and 2000s of groups outside of the u.s sphere of influence trusting the u.s intelligence agencies when they come to them with a deal yeah yeah exactly like like, we we know your history like (laughs) exactly yeah and like we did a very good job of i guess quote-unquote brainwashing people during this time of like yeah the commies are bad and like all they want to do is drop a bombs on you and like take over your way of life so fight yeah fight however you can yeah so in in the 60s higlin was nearing 80 and he wanted to secure the future of his company he had wanted to turn control over to his son but u.s intelligence regarded him as a wild card uh, they weren't exactly sure where his allegiances lied uh, sadly he was killed in a car crash on the beltway in 1970 um, according to the report there was no foul play that they could see given who's involved yeah yeah it's like uh, i'm I'm not saying they definitely did it. I'm saying that it would be hard to have enough exculpatory evidence for me to say, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, yeah, these two things kind of coincided really, really well there. <laughs> but uh, officials discussed the idea of buying crypto for years, but the CIA and NSA uh, just kept bickering uh, with each other. Um, and that prevented them from acting until two other agencies actually entered the fray. Mm-hmm. The French, West Germany, and other European services had um, either been told about the U.S. arrangement or had figured it out on their own. And some of them were obviously jealous and wanted in on this. Yeah. So in 67, the French came to Hagelin and offered to buy the company with a partnership with the German intelligence agency. He rebuffed this and reported it to his CIA handlers. <laughs> and two years later, uh, the Germans came back with a follow-up bid uh, with the blessing of the, the U.S. at this point. In 1969, a meeting was done in West Germany Embassy in Washington. Head of the country's cipher service, uh, Wilhelm Goning, uh, outlined the proposal and asked whether the Americans were interested in becoming partners, too. Months later, the CIA director at the time, Richard Helms, approved the idea of buying crypto and dispatched someone to Bonn, the West German capital, to negotiate terms with one major caveat. The French would be shut out from this entire thing. Wow. <laughs> uh, West Germany agreed to this power move and the deal was made. They agreed to split the cost, but the CIA left it to the Germans to figure out how to mask the purchase from the public. So here we fall into Liechtenstein. And the law firm uh, Marxer and Goop helped hide the identities of the new owners through a series of shells and bearer shares that required no names on any documents um, to be shown. The firm was paid an annual salary, less for extensive work, but more basically to keep them silent. Yes. I find it a little bit interesting because the thing is that France has always acted more independently uh, than a lot of the other allies. They've, They've been a little bit of a spoiler in in the UN because they were on the security council mm-hmm. actually are continuing to be on the security council. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's had something to do with it, or maybe some of the reason why they have been recalcitrant after that has to do with some of this stuff. I don't know. So a new board of directors was set up for the company. Only one member knowing of uh, CIA's involvement in any of this 
this member uh, being Stuart Nyberg, who Hagelin turned over uh, day-to-day management to. Each year, the CIA and BND split the profits of all the sales from crypto. Mm-hmm. They were constant bickering between the two from the start. The BND seemed too preoccupied with making money, according to the CIA documents. And the Germans were against how willingly the U.S. would spy on other NATO members like Spain, Greece, Turkey, and Italy. The two agencies brought in corporate outsiders to assist in running the company. Um, the Germans enlisted Siemens, mm-hmm. which is still around today, yep. to advise crypto on business and tech issues. The U.S. leader brought in Motorola to fix bulky products, uh, making clear to the company CEO that this was being done for U.S. intelligence. So the Motorola CEO knew, but only one board member of the actual company did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Germany was never ad- admitted to the, the vaunted, uh, quote unquote, five eyes, which is mm-hmm. a longstanding intelligence pact between the U.S., Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. But with the crypto purchase, they kind of moved closer to this like, you know, yeah. trophy they really wanted. Yeah, I, I was wondering how this how this interacted with the five eyes. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder how much difference the, their, their view, how much different their view of, uh, of intelligence was between that and the five eyes. Yeah. Because I imagine they see most of the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. Also, they, like, I feel like they were probably like, dude, it's called the Five Eyes. We can't let you in. Like, that would be six. <laughs> like, it, does, it, does, it clashes with our name. Well, they changed the number on the G8 uh, to the G7, so. Mm, that's true. So sales surged uh, from 15 million Swiss francs to, uh, in 1970 to 51 million in 1975. So they were, they were making bank. Yeah. The NSA eavesdropping was organized around three main targets for uh, years. Uh, group A was the Soviets, Group mm-hmm. B was Asia, and Group G was basically everyone else. Mm-hmm. And by early 80s, more than half of the gathered intelligence by Group G was flowing through these crypto machines. That would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In 1978, leaders of Egypt, Israel, and the U.S. gathered at Camp David for negotiations on a peace accord. Um, the NSA was secretly monitoring the comms of Egyptian President uh, Anwar Sadat in Cairo. A year later, after Iranian uh, militants stormed the U.S. Embassy and took 52 Americans hostage, the Carter administration sought their release in a back-channel communication uh, through Algeria. The NSA director, Inman, at the time, routinely got calls from President Carter asking how the regime was reacting to the latest messages because they could just sniff that. Yeah. In Maine, said they were uh, able to respond to these questions 85% of the time due to the crypto uh, devices. Wow. He also said all of this kind of put him in a tricky bind politically because at one point the NSA intercepted communications indicating that the president's brother, uh, Billy Carter, was advancing Libya's interest in Washington and on the payroll of Muammar Gaddafi. Really? Yeah, yeah. I remember historically he was... A little bit of a black sheep of the family, but to know that he got paid by by a foreign intelligence or a foreign heads of state, I mean, yeah, that's pretty nuts. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of you know punted this to the FBI to look into it, and they mm-hmm. did. Uh, they accused him of this, but he denied all the allegations. However, in the end, he agreed to register as a foreign agent to avoid any prosecution. And that never happened again. No, no, never. To protect its market spot, uh, crypto and secret owners engaged in subtle smear campaigns against rival companies and obviously bribed a crap ton of government officials. 
Yeah. At one point, Crypto sent an executive to uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, with 10 Rolexes in his luggage. <laughs> they also financed the uh, brothels that a lot of Saudis love to frequent in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Some countries purchased uh, these devices without the ability to actually u- utilize them. Nigeria bought a large shipment. Uh, but two years later, the NSA was like, we're not getting any intelligence from them. What the hell's going on? <laughs> so they sent someone to investigate. And this guy, this person found a warehouse just basically with all the devices sitting in them with their original packaging. So their bribery was so good that they got somebody that they got Nigeria to buy those devices yeah. when they wouldn't even be using them. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You you know some like top level government officials were like, hell yeah, we need these. And then they were like, Oh crap, we don't have any like people know how to like implement this. Yeah, like, but they, but they got their cheddar out of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In 82, the Reagan administration took uh, full advantage of uh, Argentina's reliance on crypto equipment, funneling all that intelligence uh, to Britain during the brief war with the Falkland Islands, like I was saying earlier. Yeah. Reagan uh, actually jeopardized this entire operation after Libya was implicated in the 1986 bombing of that German discount. Yes. Um, Because he ordered the retaliatory, retaliatory strikes against Libya 10 days later and then went on to address the country, saying the U.S. had hard evidence of Libya's actions. And the thing is that uh, there was some skepticism about that. They were thought that he was kind of talking out of his ass at the time. But right, right. now we know that he had hard evidence and mm-hmm. was an intelligence leak. Yeah, yeah. The, the evidence he said showed that Libya's embassy in East Berlin received orders to carry out the attack. Then the day after the bombing, they reported back to Tripoli on the success of the mission. Libya now knew their comms were intercepted because the president basically just said so on live television. Exactly. And Iran also took notice of this because they were like, wait a second, Libya is using crypto gear and so are we. So they started becoming concerned about their own equipment, but not enough to like, you know, stop using the equipment. Just kind of like, hmm, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing is like, oh, well, we need communications. Well, they might be compromised but we need communications and that's that's more important. Yeah, exactly. There's potentially a little bit of irony here that if these nations hadn't been given access to the crypto gear, they wouldn't have had the ability to communicate between each other as easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That to some degree, the infrastructure was provided even though it was flawed. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. It was kind of, yeah, like here's your phones, by the way, like, we're obviously tapping these phones, but you can't talk to each other without these. So exactly, what are you going to do? So a major issue for the CIA and BND was keeping the workforce compliant and unsuspecting of what was going on. Because obviously you have these mathematicians and cryptologists building these devices. And then, you know, the NSA coming in and being like, here, use this algorithm. Yeah. So even while hidden, the two agencies went to great lengths to maintain Hagelin's benevolent approach to ownership. Uh, employees were very well paid and had tons of perks, including access to a small sailboat on Lake Zug uh, near the company headquarters. And yet, those who worked very close to the encryption uh, design seemed to be constantly getting closer and closer to uncovering the operation's core secret. The engineers and designers responsible for the prototype models often questioned the algorithms being pushed on them by a mysterious external entity. <laughs> Crypto execs often led employees to believe that the designs were provided as part of an arrangement with Siemens Mm -hmm. uh, for their consulting. But still the question of why, if the flaws were so easy to spot, were the engineers not allowed to fix them kept coming up. Like, but we clearly see the math is wrong. Why can't we fix it? Like, no, 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 that's fine. Don't worry. (laughs) Like Siemens knows better. 
Yeah. In, in 77, uh, Heinz Wagner, the chief exec at crypto, and who knew the, the true role of the CIA and BND, abruptly fired a wayward engineer after the NSA complained that traffic coming out of Syria had suddenly become unreadable. Uh, this engineer, Peter uh, Frutiger, had long suspected crypto was collaborating with German intelligence. He had made multiple trips to Damascus to address complaints about crypto products, and apparently without authority from uh, headquarters had fixed the vulnerabilities on them. So Frutiger had figured out the secret and it was not safe with him. But the agency was livid that Wagner had basically just fired him instead of, you know, paid him some hush money and kept him on the payroll. So officials were even more alarmed when Wagner hired a gifted uh, electrical engineer in 78 named uh, Mengia Kaflisch. She had spent several years in the U.S. working as a radio astronomy researcher for the University of Maryland before returning to Switzerland and applying for a crypto job. Uh, NSA made note that she was just way too bright to remain unwitting. So they found the right person. And so clearly you can't hire her. Exactly. They're like, whoa, <laughs> she's too smart. Don't do that. This proved true as uh, Kathleen uh, soon began probing vulnerabilities of the products the company was selling. Uh, she and uh, Spornadili, a colleague in the research department, ran various tests and plain text attacks on devices, including a teletype model HC570, that was built using Motorola tech. Her colleagues said in an interview, uh, we looked at the internal operations and dependencies on with each step. They became convinced that they could crack the code by comparing only a hundred characters of enciphered text to an underlying unencrypted message. That's pretty horrendous. Yeah, yeah. He, he said it was an astonishingly low level of security. Yeah, I mean, just bringing something to like a two to the sixteenth level of attack, which is about sixty-five thousand possibilities, would have foiled trivial attacks mm -hmm. yeah this is much worse <laughs> yeah yeah exactly although he said like uh the algorithms uh always looked fishy mm -hmm. so it was like this is this is nothing new <laughs> uh Kaflish, uh continued to pose problems to the entire setup at one point she designed an algorithm so strong that the nsa officials worried it would be unreadable the design made its way into 50 HC740 machines rolling off the factory floor before the executives discovered it and stopped the, the production run. Uh, Kavlish was quoted as saying, I just had an idea that something might be strange. Uh, not all questions appeared to be welcome. The company restored the, the rigged algorithm to the rest of the production run and sold the 50 secure models to banks to keep them out of the hands of foreign governments. And Wagner at one point told a select group of members of the research and development unit at Crypto that they were uh, not entirely free to do what they want. <laughs> this, this acknowledgement subdued the engineers who kind of took it as confirmation that, yeah, the company's tech faced constraints imposed by the German government. But they hadn't sniffed out the, uh, the U.S. involvement yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the CIA and BND became increasingly convinced that their routine here was basically un unsustainable right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the 70s closed, they decided to find someone who had enough clout with cryptologists to tame the research department. And because of uh, Hagelin's ties to Sweden, Sweden's intelligence service came um, forward. Uh, they, they'd been apprised of the situation and kind of knew what was mm -hmm. going on from the, the get-go. And they ventured a candidate. Okay. This guy's name is crazy. Um, Kiel Ova Vidman. Okay. Um, he was a mathematics professor in Stockholm and had made his name in European academic circles with research into crypto. Uh, Vidman was also a military reservist who worked closely with Swedish intelligence officials. 
he also had an affinity to the U.S. Uh, form because he'd come over here as an exchange student. And in fact, his uh, his family that um, he stayed with had such a hard time pronouncing the name they just called him Harry. <laughs> and that was that was actually his code name for all this. So we'll just call him Harry for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, officials involved in his recruitment described it as almost effortless. Uh, after being groomed, he was brought to Munich in 1979 for a round of interviews with execs from Crypto and Siemens. After some fake interviewing, basically, the group broke for lunch and two men asked him to stay back. They asked him basically directly if he knew what uh, ZFCH was. When he replied that he did, the BND case officer, uh, Yelto Burmeister, said, now you understand who really owns Crypto AG, right? Uh, he was then introduced promptly to Richard Schroeder, a CIA officer stationed in Munich to manage the involvement with crypto. So. See, they sound like they found exactly their their guy. Mm-hmm. Enough clout and and amenable to the right things. And that just goes to what we were saying earlier about the Cold War being the Cold War. Yeah, and that's what he cites it as. Like, you know, he, he had this disposition where like he wanted to help his country and believe this was in their best interest to do. Yeah. He he was then installed as a scientific advisor reporting directly to Wagner. He became the spy's uh, inside agent at the company. Departing Zug every six weeks for clandestine meetings with representatives from NSA and ZFCH. Via sailboat, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got to use those perks, man. Hey, man. During during the meetings, they would agree on modifications and work up new encryption schemes. Uh, Then Harry would deliver the blueprints to the crypto engineers. The CIA history refers to him as the irreplaceable man. And the quote unquote most important recruitment in the history of the Minerva program. That was in the in the initial name for this entire thing. It was Minerva. His his stature basically cowed everyone around him and helped deflect the inquiries of any foreign governments. Um, as he settled in, the secret partners adopted a set of principles for rigged algorithms that had to be undetectable uh, by usual statistical uh, tests, and if discovered, they had to basically be able to play them off as either uh, implementation or human errors. So if anyone was like, hey, seems to be kind of funky, they could just say, well, you were too stupid to implement it correctly. Or, oh, you know, our, our engineers are bad. Sorry. Did they ever expose the the algorithms themselves? I, I just I think it would be an interesting research project by by uh, somebody who's interested in crypto analytics. Exactly what they did. Oh, the actual algorithms? I, I didn't see anything like that. But yeah, there might be someone that actually, you know. Might might be something worth trying to dig into a little bit later because that just as a study in and of itself of how do you hide bad crypto would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. In in eighty two, when Argentina became convinced uh, crypto equipment had betrayed their messages during the Falkland Islands War, uh, Vindman mm-hmm. was sent to Buenos Aires. He he told them that the NSA had probably cracked an outdated speech scrambling device that Argentina was using, but you know he was like, dude, your main product, the the CAG five hundred, totally unbreakable. Don't worry about it. Always trust the sales guy. Yeah, this worked. They kept buying the crypto equipment. They were like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. This, this guy's, you know, a brilliant mathematician. Why would he lie to us? The same year, uh, Hegelin became ill on a trip, and mm-hmm. uh, he was hospitalized. He recovered well enough to return to Switzerland, but this prompted officials to become worried about you know, all the records and papers he had in his office in Zug. Yeah. So with his blessing, uh, Schroeder um, arrived at his office with a briefcase and spent several days going through all his files. Any, any visitors that showed up or anything, he just introduced himself as a historian interested in tracing uh, Hagelin's life. 
And everything that he found that he deemed incriminating was all shipped back to the CIA uh, headquarters where it still resides. Assured was the CIA officer, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess the succession plan, because he was the only person on the board that knew where the, where the marching orders were really coming from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he had tons of correspondence with him and NSA, CIA, and stuff like that. So Hagelin remained an invalid until he died in 1983. The, uh, the Washington Post cites that they tried to locate Wagner or determine if he was still alive, but they weren't able to. And uh, Schroeder actually apparently teaches part-time at the Georgetown University. Uh, he's retired from the CIA. That's not entirely surprising. No. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was going to break this down to two parts, but screw it. I think we're going we're gonna to go for a full, long-ass episode on this entire thing. All right, everybody, refresh your drinks. Yeah. We're chugging on through. Exactly. If you're listening to this in a car, pull over, stretch. Yeah, work that neck. Make sure that you're loose. Exactly. So next we have what is called the Hydra Crisis. So crypto endured several money-losing years in the 80s. Uh, Things weren't really going that great for them. They were kind of, you know, not making their... uh, millions and millions of uh, Swiss francs anymore. But intelligence was just coming in in buckets. Like you know, Everyone was using these products. The U.S. spy agencies intercepted more than 19,000 Iranian communications sent by uh, crypto machines during the uh, nation's decade-long war with Iraq. <laughs> they, they mined the hell out of them for terrorist links, attempts to target dissidents, and all sorts of information. It occurs to me that the whole Iran-Contra thing, we had visibility into their communication mm-hmm. and we were siding with the iraqis and then we leaked some stuff to the iranians i forget exactly how that went but it's interesting that, that we had visibility into their come into their communications during that whole exchange yeah yeah it, this entire article was very fascinating because yeah like if you look back in history you're like wait we knew all this was going on or like you know had the yeah. ability to like figure this out like damn there's like half a dozen books on my bookshelf at least that i feel like i need to reread right now with the understanding <laughs> that wait a minute <laughs> yeah you're like wait a second uh iran's communications were 80 to 90 percent readable to the u.s spies that were monitoring them because of this uh this this was interesting in 89 uh the vatican was using crypto devices. And this proved crucial for the U.S. when they were uh, conducting a manhunt for the Panamanian leader, Manuel Antonio Noriega. Really? Because he he sought refuge in an apostolic nunciature, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically a papal embassy. And because of this, the papal embassy was sending messages to the Vatican City about what was going on, and we could read all those transmissions and figure out where he was. Considering how... Well, I guess this is a little bit after the Cold War, more or less. But like the Vatican uh, was pretty, had a pretty good relationship with the CIA through basically the entire Cold War. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of scandals in, that had to do with the Vatican Bank and stuff were completely about laundering money for the CIA. Yeah. Previous episode, the 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 Italian job. If I uh, talked about uh, Operation Gladio, and if you read about that, you will see a bunch of stuff about uh, related to that. But uh, yeah, but the thing is that association. I would have assumed a they probably they would have gotten the good stuff, and b they wouldn't have 
hidden somebody from the U.S., but I guess uh, neither of those things was true. Oh, I, I have no doubt that they wouldn't wouldn't have hidden it from them, but it goes yeah. back to Germany basically being like, yo, dudes, we don't need to spy on our friends. Like, there are friends yes. that will tell us things, and us going, no, we're spying on everyone, man. Like, yeah. that's, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, like oh, yeah, we, we, we found this out before. Like, I, I'm, I'm very curious if they actually contacted the u.s with this information and we were like oh my god thank you so much we like already had people going down <laughs> like this information proves invaluable spy is gonna spy eavesdropper is gonna ease yeah yeah exactly <laughs> in 92 however this oper- this entire operation faced its first crisis uh iran was acting on long-standing suspicions uh and they detained a company salesman uh hans bueller which I feel like we should throw in a, a Bueller Bueller joke there. Bueller. Was considered to be the company's best salesman. Um, Iran was one of the company's largest contracts, and Bueller had traveled in and out of Tehran for like years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were some tense moments, um, especially after the disco bombing. Uh, he was kind of detained for a little bit and questioned by officials um, in '86, but you know they they didn't have anything. They let mm-hmm. him go. Six years later, he boarded a Swiss air flight to Tehran and failed to return. So when this happened, Crypto uh, turned to the Swiss authorities and were told that he had been arrested by the Iranians. The Swiss consular officials allowed to visit Bueller reported that he was pretty in pretty bad shape mentally, uh, you know, clearly being interrogated. After nine months, he was finally released uh, when Crypto agreed to pay the Iranians a million dollars. All, all the money was secretly provided by the BMD. The CIA refused to chip in any money, citing <laughs> the U.S. policy against uh, ransom demands. But it's completely laundered. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, sorry, man, our hands are tied. Like, you know our policy. And like, but bro, like. Yeah. It was like, it's back-channeled. Like, <laughs> it, it's a Swiss company that's actually going to be paying up for a dude to keep your secret. And got it. <laughs> Excellent work, sir. <laughs> We may spy on all of our friends, but, you know, policy about ransom, man. Like, I don't, our hands are tied. There are some lines we just don't cross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Again, I, I direct your attention to Iran-Contra. Anyway. <laughs> so, obviously, Bueller knew nothing about uh, the crypto's, crypto's relationship with the CIA and BND. He was just a sales guy. Yeah. Um, he knew nothing about the vulnerabilities or anything like that. So he, he returned traumatized by this event. Because, yeah, yeah, detained that's, for nine months in Iran. like And interrogated. And interrogated. Yeah, no, that's super rough. That's, yeah, exactly. that's not cool. I don't blame the dude for being traumatized. Like, yeah. that's, that's not one of those, you know, walk it off, man. No, no. That w- that's some serious shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously he was uh, kind of hella suspicious of his company now. And he was like, wait, so does Iran know more about the company that I work for than I do? Like, what the hell's going on? So he he began to speak to Swiss News about his entire ordeal and his mounting suspicions. Mm-hmm. So this this brought attention to a lot of uh, long forgotten clues, including references to uh, something called the Boris Project and Friedman's massive collection of personal papers, which were uh, donated to the Virginia Military Institute when he died in 69. Among the 72 boxes delivered were copies of his correspondence with Hagelin. So there, there, was, there was some stuff there. They were like, wait a second. What, what was really going on with this company? So in 94, this entire crisis deepened. Bueller appeared on Swiss television uh, in a report. And that report also feeded, uh, featured Frutiger, 
the guy who had been fired for fixing the crypto algorithms. <laughs> so Michael Gruppe, uh, who succeeded Wagner as the chief executive, appeared on TV to dispute all those charges. And you know, the CIA was kind of like, yeah, he, like, he did a good job. He kind of quelled um, mm -hmm. the suspicions there. But they also kind of were like, ooh, this is probably not good. <laughs> like, so. no, any publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It, it took several years for the controversy to finally die down. But then in 1995, the Baltimore Sun ran a series of investigative stories about the NSA, including one called Rigging the Game that exposed aspects of the agency's relationship with crypto. The article reported that NSA officials had traveled to Zug in the mid-70s for secret meetings with crypto execs. Obviously, they, their names were cited on the, like, the meeting notes and like the agendas and stuff like that, and they had gotten all this information and it's part of what the report was pointing at. Gotta like fastidious note takers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Business process, there are some lines we never cross. <laughs> Amid all of this, some employees uh, started to take notice of all of this, and they began to look uh, for work elsewhere. And at least half a dozen countries suspended or canceled their crypto contracts. Surprisingly, Iran wasn't one of them. <laughs> Yet, yeah, not entirely sure why that was the case, but... Yeah, according to a CIA file, they resumed purchase of uh, uh, crypto uh, AG equipment immediately. So the the main casualty um, out of all of this was the CIA BND partnership. Mm -hmm. For for years, the BND had issues with the CIA uh, refusing to separate allies from enemies. In German, in the German history, uh, Volbert Schmidt, the former director of the BND, complained the U.S. wanted to deal with allies just like they dealt with the countries of the Third World. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, at this time, you know, the Cold War was over. Uh, the Berlin Wall was down. Germany had re reunified and, you know, had a lot of different uh, different priorities. And Hydra had pretty much shaken up their uh, confidence in this entire operation. Yeah. So in 93, Conrad Horsner, the chief of BND, made clear to James uh, Woolsey, the director of the CIA at the time, that support in the upper ranks of German government was waning and the Germans might want out. Mm -hmm. And on September 9th, the CIA station chief in Germany, uh, Milton Bearden, reached an agreement with BND officials for the CIA to purchase Germany's share for $17 million. The, the German officials or the German intelligence officials um, were pretty peeved because, mm -hmm. you know, this was good intelligence. Yeah. And, you know, they, they blamed the political leaders for ruining a successful espionage program that they've been part of for you know, years and years. Yeah. Uh, with Germany leaving, they were also obviously cut off from the intelligence that the U.S. kept gathering. Yeah. Burmeister is quoted in, uh, in German history as if wondering if Germany now still belonged to the small number of nations who were not being read by the Americans. <laughs> so coincidentally, uh, the Snowden documents provided the answer to this, showing U.S. intelligence agencies not only regarded Germany as a target, but monitored um, Angela Merkel's cell phone. So immediately when they were out of the program, we were just like, yeah, focus on them. Yeah. Now that we're, you're not going to get any clues from us about what yeah, we're exactly. spying on. Ha ha. Yeah. So operations appear to have entered a protracted period of decline after the Beeler case. By the mid 90s, the days of profits were long past and crypto uh, would have basically folded by this time. But it was just getting massive cash infusions by the U.S. government because they were still getting intelligence. So it made sense to keep them up. The reason it kept uh, kept going and like we kept getting the intelligence was a lot of governments around the world that just never got around to switching to newer encryption systems. So they were still using these crypto devices and not unplugging them. 
So we were like, whatever, keep trucking along, like do what we do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is worth mentioning that we, when we were talking about SSL, SSL wasn't incorporated into a into browsers until 95. Mm -hmm. So the availability we have right now of okay crypto, good crypto, really good crypto, we, we actually have access to to a bunch of implementations of of, of a lot of stuff yeah. was totally not the lay of the land at that point in time. Again, big red book, Schneider's book on um, applied cryptography was published in 95. There just weren't alternatives that weren't commercial at that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just for point of reference, reunification of Germany happened in 1990. Okay. So you were saying that, that, that this fell apart in what, 93? Yeah, like around like 94-ish is when... So there was a period of time where Germany had both access to the whole Minerva system and understanding of that and all the Stasi records. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so most of the employees um, were now in their late 70s, 80s, or you know had passed. Uh, mm -hmm. They were never informed of the company's true relationships with intelligence services. But most of them had their suspicions. Kaflish, the you know, quote unquote, way way too smart to be working here. Like, yeah. don't don't hire her person. Was quoted as saying, "Yeah, either you had to leave or you just had to accept it uh, in a certain way. You just you kind of knew what was going on." Um, she left the company in 1995 to spend more time with um, you know family and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, most execs were motivated by ideological purposes, like we were talking about. You know, mm -hmm. they just wanted to beat the commies. And they declined payments beyond their salary. You know, they, they just took their crypto salaries and that was it. Uh, Vidman was, uh, among several exceptions, however, as his retirement drew near, his uh, covert compensation was substantially increased. Uh, after the BND broke off, the CIA expanded clandestine collections of companies uh, in the encryption sector using cash amassed from crypto operations. The agency secretly acquired a second firm uh, and also profit the third firm. Uh, they didn't really go into this um, in any of the articles I was reading because this was mostly just centered around crypto itself. Mm -hmm. uh, crypto kept hobbling along, but struggled as encryption moved to the software realm. Mm -hmm. They just kind of weren't able to keep up. In 2017, crypto headquarters was sold to a real estate company. In 2018, the remaining assets were split up and sold. This all seemed basically designed to cover or provide cover for a CIA exit from this entire thing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that they weren't getting a lot more out of this. I mean, even if some folks still use the old crypto equipment, they're not buying new crypto equipment because the whole point yeah, yeah, is exactly. that they don't have the money to replace it with anything mm -hmm. useful. Yeah, yeah. So Cy1's purchase of the Swiss portion was uh, structured as a management buyout. This, this is the company that sells strictly to Switzerland for crypto devices. Uh, this enabled top employees to move to a new company, uh, insulated from espionage risks with like a reliable revenue. Mm -hmm. Crypto's international uh, accounts were sold to uh, a person named Linda, uh, he's a Swedish entrepreneur. When confronted with evidence about crypto being owned by the CIA, Linda looked visibly shaken uh, and said during negotiations he had never learned the identities of any of the shareholders. The company's liquidation was handled by the same Liechtenstein firm that uh, provided cover for the sale 48 years earlier. The The amount was not disclosed uh, in any way, obviously, but certain officials estimate to be around 50 to $70 million dollars. So it was just, you know, just a little bit more scratch for the CIA. And yeah. that's the end of Minerva. Yeah. Well, also, like, 
it's not just hey they 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 because they put money in, but the fact is laundered money coming in it, uh, that they can spend without being part of a budget appropriation, uh, not sourced from U.S. accounts, is actually an important thing in in all um, intelligence and espionage work. That's mm-hmm. going back to that Vatican Bank thing. That's part of the reason why that was important. Yeah, if, if you got just a huge cash flow and you don't have to deal with senators or you know yeah. congressmen telling you how how and where you can spend your money you just funnel it wherever you want yeah well i mean that's also going back to iran contra why iran contra was was uh worked the way that it did it was uh getting money from weapon sales to iran to fund contra rebels mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly i figured it was probably worth mentioning the dual ecprng thing the NSA uh, created a NIST document. NIST, uh, 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 according to this, it's SP800-90. That was a flawed elliptical curve implementation. Oh, I remember reading about that. Yeah, because this was like, yeah, I remember that, that being a big thing. It's just like, don't use ECC. Like, yeah. So as soon as you were talking about this, about flawed implement, flawed crypto implementations, I was like. This is not the only try time they've tried that. Oh no! I mean, like you know, shit. This worked out so well. Why not try to do it again? Like, well, again, especially like if you can hit the the software realm with this. And- exactly, and you know, they got it incorporated into Microsoft Windows. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> compromise once, hack everywhere. This is, in fact, you know, this is actually a trend. I think we're seeing is we see a nation state level actor doing a thing, and then we see smaller things happening. But the the uh, supply chain attack. The PRNG thing was just like an industrial sized uh, supply chain attack. Yeah. I mean, it works like shit. Why not? If you think about it, this was the ultimate supply chain attack. Yeah. So that was, that was a long one, but um, hopefully our listeners were interested in didn't get too bored and drive off the side of a <laughs> cliff. So, or your, yeah. your, your spouse or partner doesn't hate the absolute hell out of you on a road trip right now. You know, I really like the when we uh, talk about some of this intelligence action stuff. Um, oh, the, the old spy stories are awesome. Yeah. And the thing is, every single one of them we've talked about has had correlation to stuff that that we deal with in the actual industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I just like, I, I suspected that was the case, but I'm, it's kind of amazing to see it happen. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.